0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Great Conversations. It's my privilege today to welcome to our studios Dr. Bernice Pescalito. And Dr. Pescalito is a distinguished professor of sociology at Indiana University. Dr. Pescalito, welcome to Great Conversations. Thank you for joining us today. And you wear many hats here at (laughs) Indiana University. Will you tell our audience a little bit about all you do
1: here? I'd be happy to. And thank you for the invitation. Um, Well, yes, I do do a number of things. Most importantly, I am a professor of sociology. That's my home discipline. But I am a medical sociologist, which is a little bit of a fringe position in the discipline, because I study how social factors affect whether or not people stay healthy or get sick whether or not they get treatment or they don't get treatment and whether or not they live or die. And so that is an area that crosses many disciplines in the university. So it would cross like public health or um, SPIA, any number of places that are concerned with life and death. And ultimately we're all concerned with life and death and quality of that life and death. So I get called on to do a number of things and I, With the help of the National Institute of Mental Health, a number of decades ago, I started the Indiana Consortium for Mental Health Services Research, which studies, among other things, the stigma associated with mental health problems. And Indiana University is one of the two homes of the national stigma studies that are done um, in the United States. We've also done a 16-country study of stigma. So that's something that I'm very interested in, because that's the social and cultural part of why people don't recognize that they have mental health problems, Mm -hmm. why they don't seek treatment or have trouble finding treatment, and why they may not recover or get the kind of treatment that, say, people who have heart disease get. So that's very important to me. But that's had a spillover effect, and that spillover effect is uh, that one day I was in my office and got a call from Glenn Close, the actor. And she was starting a foundation to end stigma by starting the conversation. And I didn't quite believe it was her on the phone, uh, but she convinced me. And she said, she didn't convince me by saying she had just read my article in the American Journal of Psychiatry, because I don't really picture Glenn doing that, but she had, because she was giving a talk at the Society for Neuroscience. And so I helped her with that. And that blossomed into a series of events. Um, I became the scientific uh, advisor for her organization. Mm-hmm. She came to IU, fourth semester, mm-hmm. one fall, and along with uh, Lori McRobbie and Lauren Robel, who are both very interested in issues of mental health, particularly among the student body, and of course faculty in the community, um, we started talking about what can we do to make campus safe and stigma free zone and so one of the things that I'm doing now is that I am the program director for a project called the College Toolbox which has as its goal making campuses safe and stigma free zones but it's really not under my power in a sense because we know that if you want to change the world you have to work with the people who are central in that world and on campus that's really the students And so they founded a student club called U, like University, Bring Change to Mind. And with this club that's by students, for students, they come up with events and activities and courses and lectures that they want to see, and we help facilitate that. But my job, along with a number of about a dozen faculty who worked pro bono, was to assess whether or not we had changed IU. And we started with the class of 2019, We uh, sent an email survey to all students coming in that year, uh, particularly during orientation with the help of first year experience, and uh, we followed them as juniors. And not only did we change attitudes about uh, mental illness on this campus, but we actually changed student behavior. So we're very proud of that.
0: Extremely exciting.
1: We're trying to figure out now how to roll that out nationally, because we have a set of materials, we know how it works, we know why it has to be different than other efforts on campuses, and even other anti-stigma efforts uh, globally. So we know how it works, but having we've developed a couple of blueprints about how to do it, but the bottom line really is that blueprints and structure requires funding. Of course. And so that's what we're trying to figure out now, is trying to figure out the financial aspect of doing this so that we can provide all of this material, free of cost, to other colleges and universities to get
0: their own program started. Bernice, would you say that confronting stigma, learning how to weave an understanding of stigma into an understanding of the total student, total campus, maybe the total university writ large, nationally, internationally. Would you say that's one of the greatest challenges facing higher education today? I think it is now.
1: Now, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have said that mm-hmm. because it really wasn't even on our radar. 20 years ago, we were still, and, and still are, confronting issues of diversity. And when we talk about diversity, while you know, mental health is really an area in which we now think of people's mental health on a spectrum, And so it's not like you have a disorder or you don't have a disorder, but everywhere is somewhere along the anxiety continuum, everybody somewhere along the depression continuum. And it turns out that these become, this is now I think the last mutable factor that affects student retention. So we've worked very hard the last 20 or 30 years on issues of class, first generation, race, ethnicity, rural, urban. And I think the last issue to confront really is mental health. And it's interesting because some of our most successful students are the ones who are suffering in silence because they don't want to be stigmatized. Now, I think we have a real moment here between everything from Lady Gaga and her little monsters to the millennials who are not afraid to say anything. Um, I think that we have a moment where mental health can be approached without stigma, and we can begin to normalize the brain in the same way that we've normalized the body and also different kinds of social locations. So I think it's a very exciting point,
0: but it's the last one. How might you suggest the classroom itself, teaching, what we do every day as we practice our craft in our discrete disciplines, our areas of expertise. How might we in the classroom in particular teaching as a practice help address this great challenge that faces higher education in weaving stigma into our understanding and our nourishing of the total student?
1: Well, I think that Saddle already did that. To a certain extent, I think the movement from teaching to learning focused on the students and the diversity within the student body about how they learn. One of the things about how they learn is whether or not they have learning disabilities or learning differences, is probably a better way to say it. And so we don't always think about that. I mean, one of my great Accomplishments, or one of the things I'm most proud of here, is building with Brian Powell, my colleague, uh, the Preparing Future Faculty Program in Sociology, which is a three semester sequence that absolutely parallels the research sequences of learning among our graduate students in a top ten department nationally. And I think to do that was a signal about not only the quality of our department and IU, but also its openness. And so, um, I think that doing that, we begin to allow faculty to have some understanding of this. Certainly nothing that we had in graduate school. And I think our goal was to not have to have the future professorate be thrown into the water to sink or swim the way that we were essentially. And so that's where, you know, preparing future faculty came from. I think SODL has been a tremendous, has had a tremendous impact on that. And I think what that leads is to faculty thinking about student difference. So let me give you an example that I use, but um, it's a small example, but I think it's really important. So some professors understandably believe that having computers in the classroom diverts student attention. We know that this is a social media generation. We know that their phones are glued to their hips or their ears or their earbuds, whatever it is, right? And so it is true that students, some students in class will divert their attention from what we're doing. In fact, my undergraduate TAs told me that, uh, I think it was last semester, there was one student that always sat in the back of class and spent the entire class shopping for sneakers. Right? Well, you know, what I say is that this is a moment of growing up, and you pay your money, it takes your chances. Okay? So I understand why some faculty don't want computers in the classroom. But here's the problem. Uh, According to the Americans for Disabilities Act, you have to accommodate difference. And some students need their computers to take notes. Now, I don't know faculty who wouldn't allow that. Right? But that's not the problem. The problem is, as soon as you're the student in the classroom with the only computer, then you're the weird kid. You're the not smart kid. And both of these are, uh, are not correct assessments of students with learning disabilities. And lead to stigma. And it leads to stigma. Mm-hmm. So those students are avoided as friends. They are also ones where people don't want, if they're doing group work, they don't want them in their group. Um, And so I think faculty don't think about that because we have not had that training. And so part of what we're trying to do is not ask faculty to have one more thing to do a training on, but to have literally the students teach them. Because I've come to believe that with stigma, it's the children that are going to change the adults. In fact, one of the things I recommended to Glenn after doing research on stigma for about 25 years was maybe we should stop trying to change the hearts and minds of the country as a whole and focus on students and focus on not only college but high school. So. Bring Change to Mind has a very successful now high school program that's also been scientifically evaluated. So, hopefully, students will come to us without fear of being stigmatized and will move from having in high school a place to belong, which is what high school is about and the high school club is about, to college where the idea is now you need
0: to change the world. With this. So you've really begun to massage this point Bernice, but I want to return to it just a moment. Our young faculty do come to us predominantly as content experts. Yes. We want that, we nurture that yes. in their graduate education and as you've noted perhaps not, we don't do so much with regard to their preparation as teachers. This program that you've developed in graduate studies and sociology sounds so impactful. But Bernice, do you think we're doing enough of that kind of thing nationwide? (sighs) Are we preparing these teachers to address the whole student in the classroom, even in issues like stigma? No, I
1: don't think so. Because one of the great sadnesses uh, for me and for Brian is that we are the best or most highly ranked department in sociology that has a preparing future faculty program. So literally the people we hire don't come in with the preparation with which we send our students out. And let me say that that's a problem for two reasons. It's a problem because they have to come in to, I have to say, a pretty, a pretty tremendous teaching department and uh, realize that it's going to take some work to get where they get. Now I have to say that when we hire people, we do pay attention to whether or not uh, we think that they will be good in the classroom, whether or not they're interested in teaching. You know, when I first came here, or anywhere, it didn't matter that it was here, you know, people would be hired, it didn't matter so much. But my feeling was always, if, if you're Albert Einstein and you can't teach, fine, let's hire you. But if you're not Albert Einstein, you better be able to walk and talk in the classroom. So the problem is not only what comes to us, because we do a, a vetting of that sort, and we have tremendous teachers in the sociology department. And we've won all the university awards, and it's a national awards. In fact, the Preparing Future Faculty Program itself won a national award. So we're very proud of that. But the other thing is, is that, and this is sort of our big secret, um, graduate students come to us sometimes and not Harvard, not Chicago not Berkeley because we have a preparing future faculty program and so those departments are literally missing out uh, to our advantage uh, because people do want to teach when they go into higher education even if they do want to be primarily researchers in you know the old R ones according to the, the Carnegie classification you know most of us go into, uh, graduate school and, the, and thinking about the professoriate because we want to teach. You know, for some of us, first generation like myself, we didn't know there was much else. Like we just knew that if we went to graduate school and got a degree that we could teach at the college level. And we didn't see much else behind the scenes. I think that the other thing that SODL has done that's so important is that it's taken away you know, the don't pay any attention to the man behind the screen in The Wizard of Oz. I think that what we've done is that we are showing students, our graduate students, you know, the, how the sausage is made. It's not always pretty, but they have to know these things. And so in our Preparing Future Faculty class, in our classes, and the way it's structured is really interesting. So if we know that, that graduate students are going to teach in the fall, uh, and usually we don't have them do that until their third year. Then they, they have two workshops that they do, one at the end of the semester uh, in the spring, which is they have a little mini class where we inter- introduce them to things like syllabi checklist, what needs to be on it, what are the formal things at IU, what are the textbooks, why do you want to use a textbook, maybe you want to take a different approach. And then there's another workshop where all their materials are looked by the Director of Graduate Studies, or who's ever teaching that first course, which is the course that goes into the fall when they're in their class for the first time by themselves, that's sort of a keep your head above water class, right? right? We debated that for a long time, but eventually we found that students can't really understand course preparation before they're in the classroom. So we have the two workshops, and then we have keep your head above water class. Then the next one, and, and they're videotaped at that point and given lots of uh, you know, feedback from people. The next one is called Sociological Issues in Higher Education. Because as a sociologist, I believe that the classroom is a social space, I believe the university is a social institution, and um, we, we sort of take our sociology and bring it to teaching and learning. And uh, that's really interesting. It's also, we think about it as the bridge. I tell them quite frankly, this is, this is not a class in which I'm going to teach you. We are going to, you are going to cross the bridge from student to faculty member in this class. And that means you're gonna have a lot more responsibility. Um, and they're allowed to bring up anything. I mean, and I mean anything, because we use a cone of silence approach. <laughs> because students can be uh, fearful of having things go back into the department. And one of the things that I want to assure them of is just like in research, in order to help them the most and to get the best information to and from them, we have to have confidentiality. So that is a very interesting uh, way for them to think about coursework in a different way. And then the third class is subtle. So now they have to take their sociological uh, learning and apply it to some issue in teaching and learning, and it can be anything from something they do in their own classroom to uh, focusing on, you know, how SODL has changed. You know, the presentation that we did for the anniversary of Facet was that project, it was the student project for that year. And we've got some very interesting findings. Uh, we had preliminary findings at the FACET meeting, but now we've continued to do analysis and are getting pieces ready for publication. And we've just found some very interesting things. Um, and I think most importantly that SODL has really disseminated through the university, through higher education, but not as SODL. Mm-hmm. So very few, there's a very small community of people, and I would argue that many of them are the leaders of SODL uh, and the leaders of this dissemination. But a lot of the people who find it appealing and use it in their work, in the, their research work or their teaching work or even their service work, are doing SODL, but they don't feel themselves or they don't know about the community. So SODL has been incredible force in changing universities, but the SODL community
0: itself is quite strong but small. Bernice, you have built an amazing um, organization of support in your particular program and department. Did it take a massive amount of extra resources or put another way, if we're not doing enough to train teachers just nationwide, is it because we have a lack of resources to do so? Is it that we need to re or re-leverage some resources we already have? Uh, do we need lots more to come to the table? Or is it more just a, a change of mind, a habit of the heart? that yeah. needs to happen with regard to preparing these young teachers. Very, title of a very famous book in sociology, Habits yes. of the
1: Heart, right? Fantastic Fantastic book. Fantastic yeah. book. Um, I think it's a little bit of both okay. because we're in a time of um, constriction of resources. This is not the 70s. This is not post World War II where higher education was just growing tremendously, right? And so I remember exactly how we started this. Uh, we always in sociology had a teaching course which made the, the department unusual anyway. wasn't the only department but there were a couple of things that really got it moving. First of all, um, well, I came and then Brian came and we saw what a great teaching department this was and that we knew that if we wanted to, to move this further we probably could. but. The other thing that happened was that we're the last of the I'm trying to think of what to call our generation. Uh, You know, I missed the free love generation, you know, the hate Ashbery, but we're sort of the tail end of it. Um, And we found that there were a number of faculty at Research One Universities. Uh, who felt the same way. They were not happy. And there were other places, very good places in sociology, uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, um, uh, and um, University of Minnesota. These were places with their Bush program. These were places where other sociologists in R1 universities that were ranked, uh, ranked very highly in sociology, we kind of found each other somehow. And we were like, okay, that was interesting because the first thing that we had to do was break into the sections on teaching and learning because um, you had to have some strength of, I don't know what it was, you know, being willing to t- to tolerate stigma, I'm not sure because I remember sitting in a number of the first in ASA, American Sociological Association, we have a series of section by um, substance substantive meaning, like medical sociology, you know, uh, theory, methods, culture, and one of them is teaching and learning. Well, it used to be teaching, now it's teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember going to those meetings and joining that section and they would inevitably talk about, and not in these words exactly, but about the evil R1s mm-hmm. and how they didn't care about teaching. So the first thing that we saw was that we had to make it clear that we cared about teaching. And that was very important to me because when I came to Indiana University, I believe that there was only one sociologist with a Ph.D. from our department hired in the eight campus system or in fact even at any other university in Indiana. Because despite the fact that internally we were a great sociology department and cared about teaching. Apparently, whether it was real or not, and I you know, I don't know the history, but other departments around the, the state considered us to be elitist and closed. So one of the things that we did uh, was to try to build bridges to those other departments. And the major engine for that was FACET. And that's relevant not only because of that, uh, but because at the same time, uh, then President Miles Brand uh, Offered a initiative, uh, inappropriately or badly called the Strategic Directions Initiative, like the Reagan missile program, but nonetheless, and we use that to apply to create the PFF in sociology, and it doesn't take a tremendous amount of resources. It takes um, the willingness of the department to have their faculty, three of their faculty, uh, teach those courses. It also we argued very strongly that the only way that this was going to survive in our department was if it had the same status as research. Not exactly the same status, but somewhere close to it. So we said we had to have a preparing future faculty fellow, that the department had to be willing to take one of its research assistantships and make it a PFF fellowship, and then which they did, and we still have it to this day. And the other thing was that we began the preparing future faculty conference, which happens every spring on the Bloomington campus, is by students, for students, and just finished, uh, I think it was last week, where Clay Thomas, our current PFF fellow, you know, organized with other graduate students around campus this uh, incredible day of career teaching and learning for about 150 graduate students, many of whom, probably most of whom, come from departments that don't have that, those kinds of resources. So we knew that in order for this to survive, we had to uh, make it something that the department would be proud of. And that meant getting grants, which the SDI permitted us to do, and getting awards. And so we uh, submitted the program as a potential for the National Award for Teaching and Learning in the American Sociological Association, and we were lucky enough to receive it. That matters to departments. And so I don't think you can be naive. It's like you can't just do it out of the goodness of your heart or for students. You have to give back to the university and to the department the measures, right? We're all into outcome measurement now. You have to provide outcome measurements, metrics that they can use for their own purposes and being a nationally award-winning department in teaching matters to my department and I think it matters to the university and so Mm -hmm. so we're we're very happy with this and what's you know Brian and I are getting a little long in the tooth here Mm -hmm. so we um, are even prouder of the fact that the next generation of leadership for this program has stepped forward
0: and they're terrific Thinking about the next generation and thinking about next steps, I'm going to ask you to pull that crystal ball out from behind your chair and just give it a couple waves (laughs) and look in there, Bernice, and share with our viewing audience today what you think might be, or maybe it's already here, the greatest challenge to higher education in the future. Do you think it will continue to be stigma and understanding again how to teach that total student, do you think that it might still be this challenge of balancing teaching and research, head and heart? Or will it be a combination of all of that or maybe something else?
1: Well, that's interesting because one of the things that we know about sociologists is that we're really good at explaining things. I think even somewhat better. Um, I'm proud of my own discipline. Um, But we're not very good at the prognostication part, right? So we don't have the... um, we don't have the uh, what's the word the not the courage well it might be a little bit of that there too but we don't have the hubris of economists and i've always been a little envious of that that they predict right we don't predict we kind of hope and so um i would say that i hope that in 15 years stigma is not an issue on campuses I really believe that if we can use the You Bring Change to Mind program, get the financial foundation that we need to spread this, we can do two things that matter. We're not the only game in town uh, with regard to colleges, but we think, I think we figured out a way to make it not dependent on that particular student who happens to have an interest in mental health and that particular advisor. Because we all know students graduate, hopefully, and we all know faculty have a lot of things to do. So we have figured out a more institutionally based way to make this have sustainability and that's why I think that we're that 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 we have real potential here, but the other thing is is that one of the things that really blocks progress in the area of stigma, is the unwillingness or inability, and I don't know which it is, for organizations to work together on this issue, and so there are other wonderful programs. Active Minds is a program that is terrific. Um, uh, NAMI has a National Alliance for uh, Mental Illness, has a college group as well. I think what we need to do is find a way to bring all these groups together to work on this issue. Now, I just finished a stint at the National Academy of Sciences, writing, uh, helping to write the report on what to do about stigma nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a problem that's there too. And I understand why it's there, because if you're one of eight federal agencies that has responsibility for mental health of this nation, you have to prove constantly that you're doing things. And so they're not really talking to one another because with a a resource constraint society that we're in now, they all have to fight for survival, right? And so they're not as, They're not cooperating in a way that they might be able to, if we could get a larger mandate from somewhere to do that. And so one of the things that I'm very proud about uh, with this program is the students themselves have been very open to sharing. They do a lot of uh, co-volunteering for other things. One of the things that they did that I thought was just terrific was they did, um, they worked with uh, Union Board here to do a fashion show on body positivity. Mm-hmm. And they invited Ashley Graham, who is the only plus size model to win America's Next Top Model. And it wasn't directly about stigma, you know, it was directly about body stigma or uh, body image. But in fact, we know that other things that affect people can affect their mental health as well. So we shouldn't be so, have those silos. I think that we're trying and we've been trying for the last 20 years in university to break silos across disciplines and across teaching and research and uh, you know, across many other things. I think we have to do it now with regard to issues of stigma. We have to realize that many of the factors that cause people to feel stress to cause people to feel ashamed may impact their mental health and then lead to what we call a layered stigma or a multiple stigma um, or the double hit, sometimes we call it. So these things are all connected and one of the things that I really liked about what Glenn Close had offered to start was not doing the same old hackneyed, you know, what if you had cancer? I mean, it's very powerful. In fact, somebody said something to me the other day about not being willing to put their child, who has an anxiety issue, on medication. And I said, well, I would never put a child on medication without really top of the line assessment. You know, I wouldn't do it because a teacher said, or a counselor said. I said, they really need a good workup. But if somebody said this child would really profit from this, I can't see why you wouldn't do it. Because if your child had juvenile diabetes, you wouldn't deny them the insulin right? So it's not that I don't understand that disease like any other um, tagline has its power, but it's had whatever power it's had, it's worked its magic in the. US. And so in our most recent study of national stigma in the. US, uh, we found that Americans have embraced chemical imbalance, genetic roots, et cetera. They are no longer embracing issue of um, moral character,, um, a little bit still bad parenting, um, but uh, God's will. They're not embracing those moral and social reasons for mental health, and that's a good thing, but it has no effect on whether or not they endorse stigma. So we have to move past the traditional ways of thinking about this, and I think we're not there yet when it comes to learning disabilities. We're not there yet, I think, when it comes to mental illness either, but I think we've understood it now. So my work, which focuses on social networks or the power of connectedness, I do believe that networks are the mechanisms of social behavior. It's where we get our knowledge. It's where uh, we activate our knowledge. Um, so the focus on connectedness is really what brought Glenn Close here to Indiana University and to talking to my research group and then to Lori and Lauren and having them start uh, allowing us to start do the national pilot for a college-based program.
0: I feel with all of the excellent and impactful work you're doing, you're going to realize that better day that you see in that crystal ball. Maybe not me, but it doesn't
1: matter. It's, it's that you know this is really isn't about me because it's really about the students. And as the students as the millennial generation becomes professors, I hope that they take with them their openness, their, Thirst for social change and their willingness to accept difference. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank it's you. Very valuable. Thank you.